Blog Talk Radio. The following show is a proud member of the ShowDoc Network. Learn more about this show and other great shows by logging on to ShowDoc.com. This week's episode of Avner Live is being sponsored by Blog Talk Radio, The Legal Docket, and my partner's a lot at this week's celebration. Mazil Tov, it's another live schmoozing podcast episode. Welcome to Abner Live. With Abner Live, a.k.a. Quas. Tune in to hear his take on Jewish topics to find out if what's happening in the Jewish world makes the grave. Presented by ShowDoc.com. Live from Kingston, New York. This is Abner Live. With Abner Live on Blog Talk Radio. Time to talk some Judaism. Hello and welcome to Avner Live on Blog Talk Radio. This is episode 3 for June 30th, 2012. Tonight we're discussing a variety of topics with Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. We are coming to you live tonight from Kingston, New York. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ethan Klossman. In a couple moments, distinguished Rabbi Brad Hirschfield will be joining us, will be joining me to talk about a number of topics, including... Missy Maurice Sendak, the ultra-Orthodox protest against the Internet at City Field, and whether the KKK should be able to adopt a highway. During the show, I want to hear from you on the phone line as we will be taking questions from our listeners. You can call us at 1-347-426-3903. That's 347-426-3903. You may have to press 1 to get on the caller queue. Also, if you want to message or query, you can IM myself. At Ethan Clawson at Jazz.org. In addition, you can leave us a voicemail, this is text during off show hours by calling or texting us at 315-497-SHOW. That's 315-497-7469. Be sure to text or send Avner Live for your text or call. Well, on that note, we'd like to welcome on the on Avner Live Rabbi Brad Hirschfield. Rabbi, thanks so much for taking time to join us tonight. It's my pleasure to be with you. And Shavua Tov again, and thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Shavua Tov to you. Okay, let's get right into it. Uh, let's talk about Maurice Sendak and the impression he made on, on so many people. Um, you, obviously, uh, you, 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 you had covered his, um, his passing for the Huffington Post. Let's talk about the Jewish element of his life. Um, of course, he's the author of Where the Wild Things Are. Um, can you tell our listeners what was Jewish about Maurice Sendak's life and his writing? Well, look, it's a great question, and the truth is I hadn't even expected to write about his passing. Uh, my editors at the Huffington Post tracked me down in Turkey, of all places, and said, look, he just died. Um, and we need you to, you know, would you reflect on it? And I wasn't even necessarily going to talk about it Jewishly, and then he began to think about his life. And, look, the obvious place was that he was deeply connected and influenced um, by the Holocaust and how it affected his family. Most of his family was wiped out. 
during the Holocaust. But I think it runs much deeper and much more interestingly than that. And I, when I talk about what's Jewish about his writing, I want to be clear. I don't know that it's exclusively Jewish. That is to say, everything I'm about to tell you, I hope there are people in other traditions who want to claim these same things. But I know that when I look at Jewish tradition, the kind of hopeful idealism or, you know, or, or, or idealistic realism that was shot through all of Sendak's work has its roots going all the way back to a biblical narrative that managed to always tell its readers that life is fundamentally good, even when it's a little bit scary. Sendak wrote stories, and I think that's why, especially where the wild things are, appealed to so many people, because he understood the need that sometimes people have to, to rage and to be angry and to rebel and to pull away. But he also knew that he needed to be able to come home. And what he combined was the fact that even when things look scary and even when people do scary things, the possibility of that homecoming, of the dinner, the little boy and where the wild things are eventually came home to, there is something both deeply traditionally Jewish about that and actually genuinely heroic about that. And so his passing was a moment like the passing of all great influential people, to reconnect not just to their personal lives, but to the values that animated those lives and the way in which those values can animate our own lives. Actually, you speak of the passing of a Jewish influential person. Well, today, um, a Jewish influential person did pass away. Uh, the former Israeli prime minister, his name was Yitzhak Shamir, died at the age of 96 today. Um, he served as Israel's prime minister more than longer than anyone. Anything you'd like to comment on with, with Yitzhak Shamir's passing? Yeah, I mean, look, I think when you have the passing of a prime minister, whatever one's politics are, whether you think you're on the right or you're on the left or you're in the center, whether you loved Shamir, you hated Shamir, or something in between, the passing of a prime minister, the passing of the highest elected official of a renewed Jewish state, that's, you know, a young country. Think about where America was 60 years into its founding. I mean, so whatever one thinks about Shamir, that he attained that position and governed the state of Israel, that's heroic stuff. And so there's a there is a kind of sadness about the passing of this, you know, great and it's funny to call him a great man because he was actually a very small man. He was a very little guy. And I think that's also a part of the story that in some ways deeply symbolic of the rebirth of the state of Israel and the return of the Jewish people to a home in the land of Israel is that here was this little guy who did something very big. And I think that's, you know, his stature is as much a powerful metaphor as anything he did in his political career. So sure, there's a sense of loss, uh, but I also have to believe that as he reached the end of his life, this was a person who was able to do what I hope all people can do at the end of our lives, is look back and say, you know what, I was here, and I made a difference, and I left the planet off a little better off than I found, than I found it. So that's, that's good. 
Right. We're joined right now by Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, who's also an author, radio, and TV talk show host, and president of CLAL, C-L-A-L, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. His on-stage blog, For God's Sake, explores the uses and abuses of religion and politics and pop culture. He wrote, you don't have to be wrong for me to be right, finding faith without fanaticism. And we have a link, an Amazon link to that book in our show description. Uh, he's also the creator of a popular series called Building Bridges, airing on Bridges TV, and a co-host of the weekly radio show, Hirschfield and Kula Intelligent Talk Radio. Let's talk a little bit about some, some local, some, some big headlines of the week. Of course, Supreme Court announcing its decision on Wednesday to uphold the individual mandate in the health care law. Um, a lot of response was from religious groups on this law, believe it or not, well, what do you make of religious groups responding to the health care law being upheld by the Supreme Court? You know, I think that religious groups tend to confuse religious doctrine and particular policy too easily. And what I mean by that is, and I'm not telling you what I think about the law. We can get to that later if you want. But when people come out and say, you know, the Jewish thing is to support this law, the Christian thing is to support this law, or the Jewish thing is to oppose this law, or the Jewish, th the Christian thing is to oppose this law, it makes me think that these people end up turning these infinitely rich and diverse traditions into nothing more than proof texts for particular policies. So it seems to me when I look at Jewish tradition, I see elements of this law that absolutely you can make a case for, and I see elements you can make a case against. And the issue is not to figure out how whatever it is you already believe as a matter of faith is always what politics should be the same as. In other words, people tend to confirm their politics with their faith and their faith with their politics. It seems to me that a more useful approach to faith in politics would be actually to learn from something that John Roberts, the Chief Justice, did in writing in defense of the law and specifically in upholding the individual mandate, which most people assumed he would be opposed to. And that is to allow whatever faith or ideology you hold most deeply to surprise you from time to time. And in fact, if it doesn't surprise you from time to time, if it doesn't take you to unsuspected conclusions, if it doesn't make you think new things and challenge your existing thoughts, then whatever ideological doctrine or faith you hold has probably become quite stale and even a little bit dangerous. So if I were looking for a model of faith in the legal wrangling of the last week or months or a way to use faith, to make the politics and legal wrangling better, I would look at John Roberts and value the possibility of having integrity and also having new ideas and surprises all be a part of a single worldview. Yeah, he definitely surprised with going against uh, his conservative viewpoint here. Uh, well, again, when I cut you off, because that's the point, I don't think he would say he went against his conservative viewpoints. I think what he would say is his conservatism, as he would define it, is an approach to the law that doesn't always guarantee you get the policy you want. It's a method, not a conclusion. And that's what I would say about Judaism, too. At its best, Jewishness is a method, not a particular conclusion. 
So I can end up sharing a method, an approach to the use of Torah, an approach to the use of rabbinic precedent, of halacha, of Jewish law, of Jewish values, of Jewish ethics. And if we can share that process, we might not always get to the conclusion we expected or liked. And so I think actually if we could get Chief Justice Roberts on the phone at this very moment, he would tell us that actually, although the conclusion was surprising, it was completely consistent with what he understands deeply conservative values to be. The people who were surprised and thought he was being inconsistent were the people who can't tell the difference between a process and a product. Let's talk a little bit about the, about the process. Um, we had an interesting uh, news event, um, an ultra-Orthodox uh, a whole group People from ultra orthodoxy in, in New York gathered at City Field to protest the internet and talk about, about filtering it and other <clears throat> notes of that magnitude. What did you make of the ultra orthodox protest against the internet at City Field? Well, I think what they understand is something that we all understand. It's always the moment when you think the people who are least like you turn out to be the most like you. They actually understand the power of the Internet. They truly appreciate the impact of digital technology right. and mass communication online in ways that lots of other people dismiss casually or think is nothing more than a marketing tool. They understand, again, they understand it with fear. I probably understand it with great excitement. But what we share is the understanding this is very big that the Internet, in fact, has already and will continue to redefine what we mean by not only communication, but in some ways the very definition of what it means to be human. Right. Now, the difference is they're terrified of that redefinition. Where I would deeply disagree with them, although I agree with them about the enormity of it, is the idea that you can simply shut yourself off from those changes. It seems to me, if we know anything from history, is that technology spreads. It spreads faster, it spreads slower, but ultimately it spreads and reaches everybody, especially if you want to take advantage of the good it has to offer. And clearly, the ultra-Orthodox community, like most American communities, wants very much to take advantage of the good that the Internet offers. So once you buy into that part of the equation, there's no possibility of building a, an online filter. Where they're right is, there's the possibility of building internal filters. And so what they responded to with anger and fear, I would say it's the wrong response. But it's the right impulse. I know as a parent, I have to train my kids to have internal filters. What will they go listen to? What will they go look at? I don't tell them they should be scared of the of of the internet but it's a tool and like any tool the more powerful it is it can always do two things it can do increasingly good things and increasingly bad things so i think where we are with the internet is where we were when people harnessed fire thousands and thousands of years ago yes people suddenly had the ability to burn down their homes but they also had the ability to cook their food for the first time so it seems to me you have to make a decision now. 
And at the end of the day, no matter how much they scream against it, the very existence of the rally proves which way it's going to end up. There is no more saying we want to give back the fire. The issue is now, how do you sculpt it and use it meaningfully and ethically? I don't think that happens by raging at the technology in a ball field, but I do think they're on to something when they appreciate the depth of the challenge. And now it's the people who see it as fundamentally positive who can come in and help. Right. I'm talking about another policy uh, across the globe that uh, is interfering with, with religious rights. In Berlin, um, a Jewish hospital has suspended religious circumcision. Um, they, st- they stopped performing religious circumcisions following a ruling this week by a district court in Cologne to outlaw them. What do you make of these situations where you have uh, politics and, and, and policy interfering with religiosity or religious rights? Well, again, I think that politics will govern. The idea that freedom of religion means that in the name of religion one can do anything one wants is clearly not correct. And without addressing the specifics of this case, because I don't feel I appreciate it enough or know enough detail to do so, the idea that external secular authorities can, under certain circumstances, regulate the religious rituals of a particular community actually makes a great deal of sense to me. That's the corrective on the possibility of religion running completely out of control. On the flip side, though, the only way a secular authority can legislate religious practice and do so in a way that is ethical, decent, and honest and respects freedom of conscience and respects freedom of worship is if they are absolutely certain that whatever rituals they are restricting they are doing for some public welfare issue and not because they seek to impose their own secular or differently religious views on a particular religious community. Typically, what has gone on when people have sought to restrict Brit Milah, Jewish infant circumcision, has not been for the larger public good, but because of a deep hostility to Jewish tradition and Jewish practice. And that is never the grounds by which any governmental authority should restrict the freedom of a particular community to practice its rituals that it has done for thousands of years. Let's switch gears a bit now and talk a little bit about another group that's trying to uh, take advantage of the political system and uh, plans to adopt a highway. In Georgia, the KKK is planning to adopt a highway. You, You post about this on the Washington Post live blog, um, a lot of comments, a lot of response you got there. Uh, do, 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 do you think KKK should be able to adopt the highway? In principle, yes, but you can't answer this one in principle or in general. It's actually related to your previous question about religion and government regulation. You have to look at the specifics. If someone came to me and said that members of the KKK or a particular subunit, Clavern, I think they call themselves down there, like a club of the KKK, wanted to adopt a stretch of highway and that they were going to do so in a way that was, you know, simply about cleaning the highway 
and not seeking to intimidate or scare or propagandize people with their racist, anti-Semitic, hate-filled ideology, I would say, yeah, I'm in favor of that. I think they have the right to do that. I think it's very, very difficult at best and probably inappropriate, both legally and ethically, to withhold or restrict a group's rights to express themselves positively because in other areas or at other moments in the past, they've done so negatively. And were that the case in Georgia, I would actually support the KKK. But if you look at what they did down there, when they went to rally for the right to do this, they stood by the highway with Sieg Heil salutes. The leader of their group said, we're going to do this because people have to know that we're out there and they have to know who we are and what we really believe. They made comments that clearly meant to threaten and scare those who don't share their ideology. So in effect, what happened is, in a controversial but I think legal and ethical move to try and clean up highways under the banner of their name, making the claim that this was, forgive me, cleaning up their reputation, it turned out what they were really looking for was an opportunity under the guise or premise of doing something good to actually spread the same old Jew-hating, African-American-hating, threatening, violent, intimidating worldview that has been associated with the Klan for well over a century. And in that case, they shouldn't have the right to clean a highway in public as the KKK or pretty much anything else. Great point. On that note, though, should all people who want to offer volunteer civic service be welcome to do so regardless of political and social views? I think basically the answer has to be yes. And the key to your your question is should people... In other words, an individual who wants to do something positive, regardless of their views in other areas, I think should be welcomed to do so. And the truth is, I'll tell you when this was really tested for me in a very direct way, and I don't know if I would have said what I just said to you as definitively until this happened. About three years ago, I was on a driving trip in California, My wife and I pulled into a gas station, and I'm starting to fill up my car, and I dropped something. And a gentleman went to pick it up and grabbed it and said, here, don't, don't, I got it for you. Roll closer to my car. And he picked it up and he handed it to me, and I was staring face to face with a guy who was standing by his truck in a black leather vest, no shirt, and on each of his arms was a swastika. Oh, wow. Now, I'm standing there, my kippah on, my beard. You know, I, I don't look like an ad for rabbi, but I sure am not hiding my Jewishness. Right. And he couldn't have been nicer. I don't know if those tattoos reflected what he still believed or what he once believed. But what I know is that in that moment... We treated each other with great dignity and respect. So in that moment, it would be inappropriate and unfair for me to judge him on anything based on anything other than the events of that moment. And I think that's true for people who want to volunteer to serve the public. 
The fact that they may hold views that I find despicable in other settings, if when they're doing their volunteer work and they're doing it as individuals, why would I possibly want to restrict that? Why would I rather not say, look, if you can behave like a decent person here, I want to reward that. And who knows, maybe that's the beginning of cleaning up the rest of your life as well. All right. And just last question here, a great story. Thanks for sharing that really very moving story. Um, let's talk about getting back to the Affordable Care Act uh, on, the, on the legal elements of it, which is very interesting. Can Supreme Court justices remain impartial, especially when their political leanings are publicly known? Like what happens when the justice speaks about an opinion on a topic outside the court that relates to an ongoing case? Doesn't that take away from his role? I think they have to be careful, but I don't think it necessarily detracts from it. I have opinions about all kinds of things, but and here's the closest parallel I can make. When I'm asked to think about something within the context of Jewish law, I try and look at the sources that are relevant to the decision, read them as fairly and honestly as I can, and render a decision. I think the real issue is that when justices go on record as having passionately held views about an issue where they may have to decide a matter of law, they have to be extra careful that it is not those particular passions that are overly influencing their reading of the law. But in truth, since reading of any tradition or text, whether it's the Constitution or the Talmud, is never done in a vacuum, we're all, each of us, influenced by our passions and opinions. So the issue for me is less about objectivity or less about how vocal a justice should be about a specific issue. It's really more about how self-aware anyone in a position of authority is how willing they are to look very hard, not only at the texts in front of them, but into their own hearts and minds and ask, are they doing their very best to decide with as much respect for the text as possible and not simply trying to manufacture the outcome they want and then footnote it with texts that we all agree are important? And does this cloud kind of work the same way with religious pluralism? The answer is yes. And what I would have to say is, because there's two ways to summarize what klal, which as you know is the Hebrew word for inclusive, runs according to. When it comes to Jewish life, we believe there should be a place for anyone who wants one, regardless of dogma, doctrine, or belief. Because we believe that the Jewish community is bigger than any one way of being Jewish. And even if I happen not to agree with some of those expressions, because that's where the humility comes, I have to make space for you. Same thing with the Constitution. I have to be willing as a justice to see that I could get an outcome I may not agree with. And then the second piece of what we do is we actually believe, which is why I write for the Washington Post and, and work on Fox News and things like that, because we believe that being Jewish is not simply about being Jewish. It's a way of being human, that the traditions and the ideas that we've been discussing tonight or that I discuss in those venues or others can actually help us to reach more meaningful more ethical, more intelligent decisions about the way we function in the world, whether we're Jewish or not. And that's what animates the work of Klaal, it's what animates what I do, and it's what animated the answers I gave you this evening. Great, great way to end on that note. Well, that's all the questions I prepared for you tonight. 
thank you for coming on, and we hope to see you again sometime down the line. Also, before you before you go, tell our listeners they can read your columns online and clue us in to where they can follow you on Twitter. Yeah, you can you can definitely uh, follow me on Twitter at Brad Hirschfield. It's just at Brad Hirschfield, one word, B-R-A-D-H-I-R-S-C-H-F-I-E-L-D. Look for me on the Washington Post a couple times a week. And uh, you can always go to bradhirschfield.com or org. Thank you again for coming on. All the best. Be well. Be well. Thank you. That was Rabbi Brad Hirschfield joining us here tonight. And um, you can call us in here any further comments on the interview at one three four seven four two six thirty nine oh three. I'm gonna be talking about a lot of other topics on the show tonight. I'm gonna to be branching out to other topics before we close at ten fifty eight. So um definitely uh stay tuned to the show. Just wanna talk about some headlines. Um Some Google News headlines. Well, first, the Mets won again. I'm a big Mets fan, if you don't know. Uh, this show is not really developed to sports, but the Mets beat the Dodgers again. The Dodgers are really real, and they lost again to the Mets. The Mets won 5 nothing tonight. Good performance by Johan Santana. Top stories, at least 13 deaths blamed on eastern U.S. storms. Um the Syria conference leaves open whether Assad can be part of transitional government. Power struggle begins as Egypt's president is formally sworn in. Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood was formally sworn in on Saturday as the first democratically elected president of Egypt, signaling a new stage in the ever murkier struggle to defend the future of the nation after six decades of, of a dictatorship. Michael Phelps gets locked again, winning 200. Uh, I don't know what that is. In the most stirring duel of the new U.S. Olympic trials, Phelps and Locke went stroke for tro- stroke in the 200-meter individual medley. Oh, IAM stands for an individual medley Saturday night. The world's two great swimmers never more than inches apart. Katie Holmes filed for a divorce, but is she responsible for the marriage failing? A day later, the shock of the Katie Holmes-Tom Cruise split has started to wear off, but the questions surrounding what happened and the finger-pointing those questions produced are only, the, only just beginning. Netflix, Instagram, Pinterest suffer storm-related outages as evidence of the fact that high-end tentacle platforms are still vulnerable, same trials, tribulation to everybody else, a series of severe storms battled service at a few of the biggest online services this weekend. Um, I have some callers on the on the phone, on the on the line, seven eight area code. I was asking my mom how she thought the interview went. Hello, mom. Oh, hi, Ethan. That was an excellent interview. Enjoyed it. Yes, very much. She was very insightful, 
and he made a lot of good connections between uh, Judaism and politics and how things work in the government. Thank you for sharing that, Mom. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, thank you. That was my mom. She was commenting on the interview. She enjoyed it. I hope everyone else listened in also enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we may play it back another time so you can catch it again. Um, it, it was... I thought I was very interested to hear his answer about the Supreme Court, and it really gave a lot of in- insight into decisions made by the Supreme Court to go forward with things. Um, next week, I'm planning to do a show again. We already have guests planned, but uh, you can follow my information down on my Twitter page and blog and my Facebook um, blog and my Facebook Avner Live page. Find out more about the next week's guests as well. Number to call in, 1347-426-3903. We also have guests in the chat room as well over at blogtalkradio.com slash showdoc. We're broadcasting on the showdoc network here at blogtalkradio.com slash showdoc. Uh, some other stories. I'm going to talk a little about about the Affordable Care Act now. Go to healthcare.gov and you can find out more details about the Affordable Care Act. Oh, some other top Jewish stories. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, has pressed Latvia to give back Jewish property. U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton pressed Latvia on Thursday to return property to Jewish groups which were seized by the Soviet Union and whose owners were killed by the Nazis, a rare point of tension between Washington and its Baltic ally. The issue of returning property, such as schools, some synagogues, and other communal buildings, is controversial in Latvia one of the EU's poorest states in which just recovering from a deep crisis. A nationalistic minister had quit the ruling coalition last week over the issue. The United States strongly supports restitution or compensation for those whose property was confiscated by either the Nazis or the communists, Clinton News Conference during a brief visit to the Baltic state. Clinton, whose tour of Finland, Latvia, and St. Petersburg has been overshadowed by the U.S.-Russian tension over Syria, such as raised issue in all her meetings with the president, prime minister, and foreign minister. We think that resolving these issues quickly and fairly is everyone's interest, and we hope that the process will be able to move forward and that this issue about community property restitution can be addressed as soon as possible because it is a piece of unfinished historical business, Clinton said. Latvia's main Jewish organization has claimed back the property that belonged to Jews for World War II which was seized when the Soviet Union annexed Latvia in 1940. It says it's acting in the name of tens of thousands of Jews who were killed during a subsequent Nazi occupation of the Baltic state in 1941-1944. A imperial population of about 94,000, some 70,000 Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. Latvia regained its independence in 1991 and introduced laws on returning nationalized property. But with no one left to claim come evil Jewish property, the issue was left unresolved 
Foreign Minister Edgar Rinkevich for the government had a good dialogue with Jewish community and was establishing a process of restitution of the process had to move gradually. We have to exercise extra caution because today is very the situation is very sensitive due to historical considerations, he said, referring to the Soviet and Nazi occupations. The nationalistic minister for justice of the Jewish Christian Party, all the Latvian for Father and Freedom, resigned last week, saying the main coalition party of Prime Minister Valdis Dombrokovic was, was being too pushy on the restitution issue. The, national, the nationalistic Jews should not get special treatment as laws already exist for returning nationalized property. So a very interesting article there from Reuters about Latvia. And the other story I want to mention was uh, Israel accusing Israel accusing Iran of anti-Semitism in a drug breach. I'm going to get to that right now. I'll talk about the health care law real quick. The Affordable Care Act puts in place strong consumer protections, provides new coverage options, and gives you the tools you need to make informed choices about your health. Sounds like uh, their own Bible. <laughs> Key feature of the law Timeline, what's changing and when. The healthcare law puts in place reforms that will roll out through 2014 and beyond. Timeline, what's changing and when. The Affordable Care Act became law on March 23, 2010. So, over two years ago. On March 23, 2010, President Obama signed the Affordable Care Act. This law puts in place comprehensive health insurance reforms that will roll out over four years and beyond, with most changes taking place by 2014. Others have already begun, and you, if you use an online timeline over at healthcare.gov, to um, find out what's changing and when. You have pre-existing condition insurance plans. Comparing care providers. Tools to help you assess the quality of care you're getting. The Affordable Care Act is designed not just to control health care costs, but also to improve quality of care. The federal government has created several tools that allow you to compare a variety of quality measures on health care and service providers. In addition, the partnership for patents program highlights hospitals and other providers that have made a commitment to reducing medical errors, improving health care quality, and reducing costs. Let me get back to that in a second.
1040 show and the 1058. I may pause briefly as I'm working here as well. Send an email to Rabbi Brad to thanks, thank him so much for coming on and sharing all his insight. Like I said before, the Affordable Care Act is designed not just to control health care costs, but to also improve quality of care. The federal government has created several tools that allow you to compare a variety of quality measures of health care and service providers. In addition, the Partnership for Patients Program highlights hospitals and other providers that have made a commitment to reducing medical errors, improve health care quality, and reducing costs. Partnership for Patients. The partnership of patients includes hospitals, medical practices, and others that agree to support programs that improve patient safety, increase health care quality, and lower costs.
I'm going to read some other Jewish, interesting Jewish topics as well from the book, Reclaiming Judaism as a Spiritual Practice by Rabbi, the Rabbi Goldie Milgram. We talked about Klau, the um, Jewish pluralism. This represents Jewish pluralism. Here's um, an interesting chapter about... Um, which is coming up this summer. Tishabah is a time for mourning our exiles from Jerusalem, from self, from safe and supportive coexistence with other nations, from relationship with God. It is a time for considering the consequences of having been driven out of our homes so often in history, families turn apart. The sadness of this day is huge. Is the sadness of knowing that humans can be inhumane, that your life can be in peril now, inter- interact irrationally, and that murderous waves of anti-Semitism can sweep into your life and mass. Intrinsic degrees will always be an element of mourning because you know that these lessons too well. A word also found the story of Noah in Genesis is found in the Book of Lamentations. Hamas, all-encompassing. Violence, total devastation. Lamentations is Hamas, not Hamas, the terrorist group, but Hamas, the Hebrew word in the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations, it takes the emphatic, the infinite, absolute word, word form, and the lament describes as Hamas coming from the from the Mela, a masculine noun used to refer, refer to their impersonal cosmos, creating aspects of a Jewish mystic's meaning, speaking of God. At the same time, the interpersonal caring feminine noun, Shania, is the aspect of God that suffers with us and is spoken of as walking out into exile as a mourning with our people. A spiritual question, implicit Hishvah, becomes, in what way is the Shania in exile now in our lives, communities, countries, action? How do we create the intent of the word Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Name is a hope and prayer for you, Ruth, city of Salem, completeness, wholeness, fulfillment, peace. The Hebrew title of the Book of Lamentations is Aya, which means how. It derives from the first line of text, How Lonely Are We. To lament means to mourn or wail. Pick up a book of Lamentations. Look at the words with a friend. Go line by line, see how the verse to fight to you in your life. What is your lament? Laments are often mishandled. Lamentation is a sacred text. Your laments are also holy. Lamenting is part of the initial process of healing from a, from a wounding. Sometimes you become stuck in your place, playing that same tape over and over. A lament must be heard, honored, and looked into to see what you need. When a lament moves on to become part of your same history, along in the foreground of your daily life, the healing has begun. A nursing home resident laments, I had a beautiful home, my children sold it. Now I live in a small room, the meals here do not taste right. Too often the response is, you was lucky to be here. That was an excellent facility. You couldn't live on your own anymore. To respect a lamb, however, is to respond. How sad you sound to you have your home and so much your independence. I can imagine that you missed familiar tastes of foods you preferred, and there's been many other things you probably missed too. The current respect of the pattern of the lamb does not be repeated. The curiosity about being your place to advance or a room to emerge. 
This too is a function of lamentation to Tishra, for the pain of the ancestors to be heard and honored, how lessons of you and grass, so we can move on with renewed vigor and termination for living. I first encountered the technique for experiencing the meaning of the text in the Midrash class taught by the choreographer Liz Lerman. This works best if done when the study group of class. In one page, write out your worst nightmare or invent your worst nightmare scenario. In the future, when I interview guests, I'm going to be more uh, lamentable about my introduction to questions I ask them. Wander among them, reading and capturing key phrases that can be expressed in the movements of your arms, head, and body. For example, when I first did this, I saw someone written about a car wreck rolling over and over in a vehicle that was out of control. I began to roll on the floor, feeling terror. Another described being trapped in a freezing cold on a camping trip. It's nice for freezing cold in this day and age, the way how hot it is, and the humidity is really getting up there in New York State. Yom HaShoah Yom HaSikaron and Yom HaSa'ud. I'm going to read about these three holidays. A very interesting paragraph in a book by um, by Goldie Milgram. The United Nations formally affirmed the reestablishment of a Jewish homeland of Saviour to, to commence on May 15, 1948, and Yom Hasmud, Israel Independence Day, is celebrated around the 21st day of the Omer. It can vary slightly depending on the lunar month's month cycle and practice of, of avoiding holiness on Shabbat. Our experience of hope and reemergence from oppression was promptly challenged by the renewed nation being attacked by the surrounding nations. The world watched as a fragment of our people who survived World War II mounted defense. One percent of Israelis died in the 13-month war of independence that ensued. Israel miraculously survived to once again take on the joys and challenges of nationhood. Yom Hazikaron, the fifth of the year, is set aside to memorialize Israel's ever-mounting war dead and missing in action and is held a day for Israel Independence Day. In Israel's military cemeteries, many tombstones and sculptures of beds and on Yom Hazikaron and families of the country are to be found weeping upon them. A siren sounds this day, and for two minutes, everyone stops what they're doing a standing silent tribute, and within them, one another told them silent scream is why. Holocaust Memorial Day, known as Yom HaShoah, Shoah means utter devastation, is designated by Israel's parliament for Omer, day 12, approximately the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and yet not fall during Passover. It took time to recognize the enormity of the tragedy required for more space and simple incorporation into Tishabav. So within the Omer sequence, 
is the additional experience of Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, and Yom HaTzma'u. On Yom HaShoah, respectful pluralism comes naturally as many join the Jewish people in mourning and remembering the over 11 million people who were Nazis and the, co- and the collaborators murdered during the Holocaust. The number includes 6 million Jews and 5 million additional target group members, homosexuals, gypsies, mental patients, the mentally disabled, deformed and handicapped persons, political prisoners, Jehovah's Witnesses, black Germans, Poles, and Russian prisoners of war. Retelling the unimaginable. Yom HaShoah observations had their core retelling and remembering. As one of the personal survivors, I undertake the mitzvah of doing so now. A woman came into my office at a Jewish Federation in 1980s to carry a yellow square of journal newspaper. You're head of things here, she inquired? Yes. To must God for the future. What does it say? I asked. I don't yet read German. She shook her head and finally gently whispered, I entrust it to you. She left quickly. I ran across the hall to the insurance office run by another German Jewish survivor who translated to me. The same from a small town paper list of deaths, a number of children in town called Auschwitz. Okay, switching gears a bit. Israel passed a law in 1961 that closed all public entertainment on Yom HaShoah. A siren sounds at 10 in the morning. Everyone stops what they're doing. Those in cars pull over, get out, and stand in remembrance. Throughout the world, people also chose to abstain from entertainment to follow the base rituals on the fast day. Abstain from wearing leather, shaving, wearing makeup, or adorning oneself. But not fast, but to emulate the suffering of those in the camps feels inappropriate. Unto every person there is a name, is initiated by the Holocaust Museum in Israel, Yad Vashem, which provides lists of the names of Jewish victims from memorial rituals. In many communities, the six candidates will represent the six million who died, and lengthy, sometimes 24 hour names these victims are conducted. For example, at the site of the former velodrome, the Hebrew, where parsons were, co- were concentrated for the deportation, the annual reading names of the Jewish of the French Jewish deportees. Curricula on tolerance how to stand up to injustice are also dedicated and donated to schools in the state. It's sent to the children without fighting them about what occurred. This happened in your community. The annual March Liberty brings together thousands around the world during April of each year to participate in a ceremonial march from the concentration camp Auschwitz to Birkenau. Many light one yellow Morgan at home at Yom HaShoah, a project of the Federation of Jewish Men's Club, www.fjmc.org. This action person, an experience of an altar of costume in your home with prayer discussion, members can be added. Congregation of Beth David in Central California has spent upon this by wrapping on a yellow can on the map of many sites of Jesus to importation and slaughter, sends home to Hebrew school students, family, along with recommended reading and rituals. Of all the diverse ways of responding to memory is need to gather in the community for co- for comfort, mourning, and reflection that have become firmly established in the calendar of Jewish sacred time. Yom HaShoah memorial services rarely have to use infrastructure of additional Jewish prayer service, no Shema, no Amida, no Aleinu. These common these commemorations are are about praising God, not nor could they be without 
that one angers all that have a relationship with God. As the survivors among us age and their souls depart, and me as a merit for a sacred text, to recount tragedy, much lamentation is, is chant on Tishra of a poignant work called Megillah Hashoah, the Shoah Scroll, has emerged via the conservative movement, www.uscj.org, that seems to fill with power and dignity this huge and awesome task. Just to close up now, um, show has come to an end. We've gone from 28 live and th- over 300 archives to seven live and many more in the archives. Episode four will be probably will probably be next week. Actually, it will be next week. Episode four will be next week at 10 p.m. Next Saturday night, July 6th, I believe. It's July 6th or July 7th. Let me check that. July 7th at 10 p.m. will be the next show. Stay tuned to our Twitter page and Facebook page something on guests and topics. You can follow us at Twitter.com slash Live. Like us on Facebook.com Search for Avni Live. Thanks to Rabbi Brad Hersher and, and our listeners. I'm Ethan Klossman. Talk to you next time.